If you're new this morning, my name is Joe. I'm the lead pastor of Connection Church, and uh, we are really glad that you joined us. Today we are going to be talking about weddings and wine. So you came on a good week. Uh, In January, we started our journey through the Gospel of John, and we spent the first four weeks of our time in John chapter 1 looking at the identity of Jesus. And so what John does at the beginning of his Gospel is he puts all his cards on the table, and he tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. He tells us that Jesus is the Messiah, and he tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. And then starting in chapter 2, John is going to start sharing stories from the life of Jesus in in order to prove that that is true. So John is broken up into two parts. Chapters 1 through 12 is called the book of signs because there are seven signs or miracles that Jesus does that reveal uh, his identity as the Son of God. And then starting in chapter 13 through 21, that's called the book of glory because it focuses on the last week of Jesus' life as he goes to the cross and it leads up to Jesus' death and resurrection. As we begin chapter 2 this morning, we find Jesus at a wedding in a small village called Cana, which was eight or nine miles northeast of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And it's at this wedding, in the middle of nowhere, that Jesus will perform his first ever miracle, or as John calls it, his first miracle ever sign. Turn with me in your copy of the scriptures, whether it's digital or hard copy, to John chapter 2, starting in verse number 1. This is what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So when you get invited to a wedding, it usually means you have to get a nice dress or buy a suit or take something out of the closet you haven't worn in a while. You need to write a check. You all know how this goes. You have to go to the wedding. You have to go to the ceremony. You hope they're not taking pictures in between the ceremony and the rehearsal because that can get long. Can I get a witness? And then... Here's what the, ser- or the reception is like. You eat dinner, and then they cut the cake, and then there's some dancing, and usually the night ends with someone's drunk uncle awkwardly dancing to brown-eyed girl. That's usually how weddings are in this culture. But if you went to a wedding in Jesus' day, and if you are that drunk uncle, we love you, you should probably stop doing that. But if you went to a wedding in Jesus' day, it was a much longer celebration. Wedding feasts lasted somewhere between 7 to 14 days. You would invite everybody in your whole community. No guest list, everyone's invited. The cultural expectation was that the groom's family would provide all the food and drink for the wedding guests. And at this wedding, something terrible happened. They ran out of wine. So when I read this next phrase in John chapter 2, verse 3, when I read when the wine was gone, we're all together going to say, oh no, okay? You're like, this is way too much participation. You already asked me to respond once, and that was generous. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, you guys are awesome. We are just taking leaps and browns in responsiveness this morning. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Okay, that's way too much. I'm, try- I'm trying to preach. 
So to run out of wine at a wedding was an incredibly embarrassing social faux pas. It was such a big deal, catch this, that if you ran out of wine, the groom's family could be subject to a lawsuit from the bride's family. So Mary asks her son to intervene. Many scholars believe that this was a family wedding for Jesus and Mary because Mary feels some sense of obligation to take care of the wine shortage. Now keep in mind, Jesus has not done a miracle. So I don't think Mary's like, oh yeah, Jesus, you're just going to take some water and you're going to provide wine for everybody. Mary is just leaning on her son, who has been taking care of her probably since Joseph died, Jesus' earthly father. And so Mary's just like, hey Jesus, time to jump in here and help the bride and groom. Jesus responds, of course, mother, I'd love to do that for you. Dear woman, and in the Greek it doesn't say dear woman, it just says woman. Mm -hmm. You don't talk to your mama that way. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, just circle that, Jesus said that. Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. So in the original language, this word woman is actually not disrespectful or rude or harsh. It's actually a respectful term that Jesus actually called several women throughout the Gospels. He would just walk up to them and say, woman. He did this with the woman at the well. And it's not degrading, although to us it sounds incredibly degrading. But it's not exactly a term of endearment between a son and his mama. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus is making it clear that the wine shortage isn't his problem, and he gives a reason why. My time, or more precisely, my hour has not come yet. Every time Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about the time when he will go to the cross and die for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is saying to Mary, woman, don't give me orders and don't rush me. And I love Mary's response. Here's some faith for you. His mother said to the servants, yeah, 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 just do whatever he tells you. This is an odd response seeing as Jesus just rebuked his mom. I love what Mary says. Just do what he tells you. What's even more odd is that Jesus is now going to solve the problem. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So every time you would go to a feast, you would have to become ceremonially clean. So you'd have to wash your hands and your feet and all of the forks and bowls and everything that was going to be used needed to be cleaned in these ceremonial things just to get all the filth off of everything. But it wasn't really about cleanliness. It was about like a religious ritual. Jesus said to the servants, see the bathtub over there? Fill the jars with water. Oh gosh. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, a.k.a. the DJ. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water from the bathtub that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Of course he didn't. Though the servants knew, you want us to do what? You want us to fill that where people have been washing their feet and their hands with water and then Ladle some wine out and take it to the DJ? Okay, whatever you say, Jesus. Then he called the groom aside. So this is the master of the banquet. Then he called the groom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the boxed wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. 
This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Is this not a strange miracle? What in the world are we supposed to make of Jesus turning water into wine? It's not strikingly clear what the meaning of what Jesus is trying to communicate in his first miracle to us. But I want to remind you something John told us in the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 14. John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So every time John tells us a story about Jesus, he wants us to see something about Jesus. He wants us to see the glory of Jesus. A few weeks back, we said that though the word glory can be a bit hard to understand, what John is ultimately referring to when he speaks of Jesus' glory is his character. To see the glory of Jesus is to see the fullness of who Jesus is. To see the glory of Jesus is to understand who Jesus is. So, What is John wanting us to see about the glory of Jesus from turning water into wine? Three points this morning. The first thing is this. Jesus is an obedient son. There is something very profound happening between Jesus and his mom when she asks him to take care of the wine shortage. And he says, woman, this isn't my problem. Why didn't Jesus just say, mom, sure, I'm going to take care of it. After all, that's what Jesus ended up doing anyway. Why does Jesus have to be so contrary? At the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus needed to make something clear to his own mother. I don't take orders from you, and I am not on your timeline. Jesus was establishing that his family relationships on earth would not control him or obligate him. His own mother would have no special advantage to guide him in his ministry. We don't know what happened to Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad. Many think he died early in Jesus' life, but Mary had just come to lean on Jesus for her earthly needs, and so she just thought, hey, I can pretty much tell my oldest son what to do because all he's ever done is take care of me. But Jesus is only going to answer to one person, his father. Jesus told the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5 verse 19, he says, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do, he can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. Jesus's allegiance was not to his earthly family. It was to his heavenly father. Everyone get prepared. This is the part of the message you're going to like the least. This is important for us if Jesus' allegiance was to his father. This is important for us if the goal of our lives is to be like Jesus. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ, not our family of origin. Every time we have a baby dedication, we are establishing this truth in the hearts and minds of parents. Each child's life belongs to the Lord and is entrusted to a parent only for a season. To be clear, the Bible teaches that we are to care for our aging parents. 
and children are to honor their parents. But ultimately, for every one of us, young and old, our allegiance is not to our families. It's a good spot for an amen. Our allegiance is not to our families. We are not called to spend our lives living up to the expectations of our controlling mother or our overbearing father. Some of us, the person in life we're still trying to please the most is mom or dad. They have an unhealthy spot in your life. You don't just love them. The mission of your life is to make them happy. And you know why that is not a good thing? Because that is standing in the way of you following Jesus. Listen to some of Jesus' toughest words. Luke 14, verses 25 through 26. Jesus said this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not... What's that word? Wow. Wow. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus saying you're supposed to hate your mama? No. He's saying that you should be so devoted to him that it looks like how you're following everybody else looks like hate. It's not that you should have ill intent towards wife, children, mother, father. It's that Jesus should have so much of your heart that no one else gets to tell you what to do because you're following Christ. Parents, it is your calling to point your kids to Jesus and encourage them to say yes to him, not to try to get them to stay in town and live next door. Do I think it's good to live near your family? Absolutely. What a gift from God. But I would not be your pastor if that was the goal of my life. Nor my wife, nor I get to live near our families. Why? Because God has called us here to be with you. And I just want you to know, it is better to say yes to Jesus than to try to spend your life making mom and dad happy. Children, who's a child? If you're born, that's all of us. Like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> who's a child? You're going to get that later. I'm praying for you, 11 o'clock. We started strong. We're falling off a little bit. Children, that's all of us. It's right and good to love our families. Please hear that. But if you want to be like Jesus, your allegiance must be to God alone. And that means you are to obey him and follow him above all else. Here's the second thing I want to tell you. This is great news. Jesus is a compassionate provider. You know what's easy to miss about this story? Jesus cared enough about the groom's family to spare them the social embarrassment of running out of wine. Oftentimes we see the miracles of Jesus and we immediately want to talk about the power of God over creation, which God is powerful over creation. God still does miracles today. I want you to know I believe that with all of my heart. But when you stop and think about it, every single miracle Jesus performed met a personal need in someone's life. Jesus cared enough about a couple of unorganized teenagers with egg on their face to provide them with over 120 gallons of exceptional wine. 
And not only that, the only people who knew that Jesus had changed the water into wine were his disciples and servants. He didn't draw attention to himself or highlight to the whole wedding that the wine was gone. One commentator pointed out that this 120 to 180 gallons of wine would have been a tremendous financial gift to the young married couple. What is Jesus showing us? He's showing us that he cares about the details. He is showing us the heart of God who knows the number of hairs on our head and when we're about to run out of wine and look bad. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that we should seek first God's kingdom and not spend our lives worrying about our money and our material possessions because our Heavenly Father already knows our needs. That actually should free us up to be the most generous people on the planet. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 to bring all of our anxiety to God because he cares for us. The author of Hebrews reminds us that God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Jesus said when we go out to make disciples in Matthew 28, he will be with you to the end of the age. Seeing Jesus at the wedding begs us to ask this question about our lives. Do I really believe Jesus cares for me? Do you know that the God of the universe sees you, knows you, loves you, and cares about what you're going through this morning? He cares about the details of your life. He isn't too big or too busy to pay attention to your need. God does not always give us everything we ask for, but God always gives us everything we need, and he's incredibly generous. Jesus is a compassionate provider. Thirdly, thirdly, Jesus is a superior purifier. Man, this is the best thing I've preached in a long time. I'm so excited to share this with you. For some of this is, for some of you, what I'm about to share is going to change your life. So just be open to what God wants to do in your heart in these next 10 minutes, and then we'll go home. Jesus is a superior purifier. The meaning of this miracle is tied to the fact that Jesus turns water into wine using the stone water jars that were used for ceremonial washing. In the Old Testament, we read a lot about ritual purity. There is this ongoing distinction between clean and unclean. For the Jews of Jesus' day, any moral or physical blemish made a person unclean and unfit to be in the presence of God until they performed the prescribed ritual to make them ceremonial, ceremonially clean. What made this hard is that some people were always considered unclean no matter what they did. People like lepers and Gentiles and prostitutes. There was no way that they were ever going to be considered pure before God. So when Jesus fills the purification jars to the brim with water, and then he changes that dirty water into wine, he's confronting this idea of clean and unclean. Throughout his life, Jesus had a real problem with those who were about outward moral conformity rather than inward transformation. In fact, Jesus saves his harshest judgment 
for those like the Pharisees who believed that ceremonial purity was the height of what God wanted from them. Just do all the religious rituals and you can be right before God. Jesus would say to people like that, you are like a tomb. On the outside, you are decorated nicely, but really inside, you are full of dead men's bones. He would look at the Pharisees and say, you're like a gold bowl that's beautiful and shiny on the outside, but when I look inside your life, last night's dinner is still stuck on there. Jesus is repulsed by the idea that being outwardly pure is what God is ultimately after. He was refuting the idea that somehow doing all the right rituals could lead to a pure heart before God. Jesus is against those of us who think, I took my first communion, now I'm clean. I got confirmed, now I'm clean. I got baptized, now I'm clean. I take communion once a month at Connection Church, now I'm clean. Jesus is like, that is not how a person gets clean. You're like, that's direct about some other faiths. It sure is. Why? Because I've got awesome news to show you about what it means to be clean. Through this first miracle, Jesus is saying the days of using water and rituals to make yourself pure before God are over. Your devotions can't make you clean. Your prayer life can't make you clean. Fasting can't make you clean. Why? Because Jesus comes with new wine. Jewish religious practice is completely insufficient to make you right before God. Jesus brought the new wine of celebration, joy, rejoicing, because it's the new wine of His blood. That makes us clean. Jesus' new wine makes new people. New wine washes away your stains. New wine makes you clean. New wine takes away your shame and your guilt. That's good news. See, only Jesus can make you clean. This whole idea of clean versus unclean was so pervasive that one of the more powerful stories in all the Bible is found in Luke chapter 7, where a woman of the city, we call that a prostitute, comes into a home where Jesus is having dinner. She is a broken woman. She sells her body to survive. And she comes into where Jesus is eating with some prominent religious folks. And she is weeping, and she is broken, and she is undone, and she knows that she is gross, and she knows that she is repulsive, and she knows that she is unclean. But she comes to Jesus, and she falls down on her knees, and she begins to weep over the feet of Jesus, and she takes her hair, and she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus and make those clean. And the Bible says that Jesus knew what everyone was thinking around the table, and he turns to the host and he says, I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking, if I'm really a prophet, I would know that this kind of woman would never be allowed in my presence, because her touching me would make me unclean. And then Jesus looks at the men and says, what this woman has done is beautiful, and then Jesus tells them a quick story. Two men owe debts. One is massive, one is small. But both of the debts are forgiven. Who do you think is going to be more grateful? And the host, a man named Simon, says, well, I guess the one who owed more would be more grateful that their debt 
was forgiven. And then Jesus goes on and he tells these self-righteous, hard-hearted men who thought that they could be made clean because they check all the right boxes and they do all the right things and they show up in church every Sunday and they write their tithe check. He says to them, that's not what I'm after. This woman, what she did was beautiful. And do you know what? Because she knows how much she is forgiven, she loves me much. The issue was not that this woman was unclean. The issue is that she took her unclean life to the only one who could make her clean. To be touched by Jesus is to be made pure, 100% forever pure. When Jesus touches us, our nastiness does not remain. His righteousness pervades, and it transforms us from the inside out. Do I want us to be a church that is morally pure? Absolutely. Do I want us to attend church, tithe on our income, serve in ministry, spend time with Jesus every day, say no to our evil desires, and yes to godly desires? Hear me. Absolutely. Do I want us to be a holy church? Yes, 100%. But transformation does not begin with your good behavior. It begins with the new wine of Jesus' cleansing blood washing over your body and taking away your shame and your guilt. If you are here this morning and you are carrying around shame and guilt, the shame and guilt of your past, that's so many of you. If you are here and you are carrying the shame and the guilt of your past and you will not forgive yourself and you spend lots of time wondering if God will forgive you and even in this service when we worship, you feel totally unworthy because your sin is always before you. I am here to tell you, you are unworthy, but Jesus will make you new. If you are here this morning and you are letting your failures and your sin define you, only Jesus can make you clean. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That means if we stop hiding our sin, if we stop pretending we don't have issues, but we come into the light of God's presence and we bring all of our guilt and we bring all of our shame, what happens? The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Please know this. There is no religious ritual. There is no special ceremony. There is no magic word that can make a person new. It is only turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you are here and you are sick of your life. And that is good news because Jesus has new life for you. I want to close our time together this morning by asking each and every one of you this question. Have you run out of wine? When the wedding guests had drunk their fill and ran out of that wine, there's all of a sudden this new wine that was so much better than the old wine. John is trying to help us see. Do you see these people at the wedding? 
Do you see how they have drunk their fill and the wine is gone? Someone is on the scene who brings new wine that actually satisfies. And Jesus fills up those ceremonial jars to the brim. And he says, there is grace for all who will drink this wine. See, what you need is the new wine of the work of Jesus. You need the work of Christ to cleanse you and to make you pure this morning. The wine Jesus offers is the best wine. And there is more than enough. There is more than enough to cover your shame and your guilt. The new wine is for all. It's for men. It's for women. It's for murderers. It's for thieves. It's for Democrats. It's for Republicans. It's for abortionists and for pro-life activists. The new wine is for presidents and prime ministers. The new wine is for the greedy, for the porn addict, for the young woman who has consistently tried to find life in the arms of a man only to feel used and neglected. There is new wine for you this morning. There is new wine for the mother who feels like she is failing. There is new wine for the father who is hiding his sin and he is not the man that everyone thinks he is. There is new wine for the drug addict. And there is new wine for the depressed, the anxious, and the broken. There is new wine. There is new wine for every man, woman, and child today. How do I know that? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, no matter who you are or what you have done, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. They are a new creation. Do you know that Jesus Christ does not offer you religion? He offers you new life. That's why we're here this morning. Because we serve the king of the universe who conquered death and who gives us life in his name. That's what you need. That's what I need. We don't need religion. We don't need to check the boxes. We don't need to try and earn stuff from God through our good behavior. We need to be made new. And who's the only one that can make you new? Jesus. The old has gone. The old distinction between clean and unclean, washing your hands and your feet, following the law in order to make yourself right before God, the old Jewish religious practices, sacrificing a lamb on the altar over and over again, trying to get your sin atoned for, turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has come to make everything new in your life. And I want you to know this morning that I got out of bed to come and tell you that. That the good news of what Jesus has done is the greatest news on earth. And today, you can leave here 
free of shame, free of guilt, and brand new. How do you do that? Do you have to jump through some hoops? Do I need to get you to take a class? Do you need to pray some special prayer? Do we need to do some religious activities? No, something harder than all that. You have to bow your life to Jesus Christ. You understand that that's the harder thing. We are people, we want rules. We want rules to know that we're doing everything right. And Jesus comes and says, rules are over here, faith in me first. There are things that we need to do in the Christian life. We have been commanded to do certain things, but they never transform us. It's always through faith in Jesus. New life is a gift. It's not a reward for good works. New life is a gift of God, and you can have that today. What do you need to do? You need the new wine. You need the new wine of the blood of Jesus who can take away your stain, who can take away your guilt, who can make you clean. I'll never forget a young woman. I used to preach on Tuesday nights at Chaplin's Music Cafe in Spring City. And there was always at least 18 people there. And I used to preach there and most of my sermons were atrocious. And if you had to hear any of those, I'm sorry. They were bad. But there was a young woman there. Her name was Michaela. And I will always remember Michaela. Because during one of the nights when I was preaching, we kind of took this two-question survey. And I said, and the question was basically like, what's your biggest question about life? And I'll never forget what Michaela wrote. Young woman, she was probably 19 or 20 years old. She was beautiful. I remember her. But I'll never forget Michaela's question. I remember reading it. I just don't know where to go to purify myself. I just don't know where to go to purify myself. There's only one place to go. And it's not to religion. And it's not to rituals. And it's not to being a better person. It's to Jesus Christ. That's the only place you have to go this morning. Would you do me one last favor? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I just want to ask if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice who knows that they need to be made clean. You know that you need Christ to take away your shame, take away your sin, and take away your guilt. You know that you're sick of your old life and you are ready for a new life. And I just want you to know that Jesus, oh Jesus, he is so ready to give you new life this morning. Jesus is so ready to make all things new in your life today. Here's what you need to do. You need to put your life in Jesus' hands. If you know that you this morning, let's talk to God together. Pray this and just all we're doing is talking to the Lord. Let's pray. If this is you, Jesus, make me new. I need to be made clean. I need you to make me pure. Take away the sin and the shame and the guilt that I live with. And God, make me a new person. 
with new desires and a new heart. I want to follow you, Jesus. I have clearly done a bad job being the leader of my life. And I want you to lead me now. I need to be forgiven. I need to be made new. My life is yours. Help me to follow you. Help me to say yes to you in every detail of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.